The titan Prometheus sat in the earth, carefully molding the clay between his fingers into a tiny man as he glanced upward at a field which he had filled with thousands of them, slowly coming to life. He didn't fit in with his fellow titans. Certainly he was one of them, and he had helped in the battle for freedom from their evil father. However, since Kronos' ascension as leader, he had imprisoned the hundred-handers and the Cyclopes. Worse, his betrayal and murder of their father had made him paranoid, so much so that he had become terrified of his own children, frightened that one of them would kill him as he had killed Uranus. He had spent years eating his own children, breaking the heart of Rhea, his wife. Finally, when she could take the sorrow no longer, she delivered a healthy baby boy and sent him away to live with the nymphs. She carefully wrapped a stone in swaddling cloths and gave it to Kronos, who ate it without question. Years later, that baby, Zeus, had grown into a man and married the titaness Metis. While Prometheus quietly saw his little humans struggle, he taught them to the skills to survive. He taught them arithmetic, writing, art, medicine, and animal husbandry. As Zeus grew to be the consequence for Kronos taking a life away, Prometheus spent his time trying to build and cultivate life among his little humans. They were funny, feral little creatures, and he enjoyed taming them and helping them thrive. He loved them so much. He knew what the uprising between the gods and the titans would mean to his tiny creations, and as hard as it was, his gift of foresight had already told him which side to take. Metis found an opening as a cupbearer for Kronos and helped Zeus get the position. They both watched as Kronos drank deeply from his poisoned goblet. The reaction came quickly. He coughed, covered his mouth, and rose from the table. Rhea cast a troubled glance at him as he gripped the corner of the table and opened his mouth wide and vomited out his five older children. Poseidon, Hera, Hades, Hestia, and Demeter stood beautiful and fully grown in front of all of the titans in the banquet hall. Kronos let out a pitiful wail of pain and collapsed in a bloody, stinking pile of sick. Zeus gathered all of his siblings and fled before the shocked titans could retaliate. The Olympians, as they would come to be called, had no armor, no weapons, and were still stretching from being cramped up inside of Kronos, so they fled to Mount Olympus, where Metis was waiting. She gave them weapons, and they did their best to hide. Prometheus and his mother knew now was the time to choose a side. Uranus had prophesied that Kronos would also be slain by his own son. So the victor of this war had already been decided. Since neither the titans nor the gods were interested in his humans, he needed to be on the winning side if he wanted to protect the little creatures. They climbed Olympus and made an alliance just in time for the first team or for the first battle, cementing themselves as part of Team Olympus from the beginning. Unfortunately, the first several battles went poorly. Despite the prophecy in his favor, Zeus could not bring the gods a victory. The great war, the Titanomachy, raged for ten years, tedious, exhausting years. Both armies had divine origins. Both were made of immortals. 
who would get a devastating injury only for it to heal overnight, only to begin again the next day. Zeus's siblings were horribly outnumbered and suffered loss after loss. One day, while Hera was bandaging Demeter's head and Hades was keeping watch, after ten years of fighting, Zeus finally came up with the obvious solution. The Titans had overthrown Uranus with the help of their siblings, the Cyclopes and the Hundred-Handers. But once Kronos had won his battle, he had banished his siblings back to Tartarus like Uranus before him. If anyone wanted to lay some justice on the Titans as much as the Olympians, it was the Cyclopes and the Hundred-Handers. After this vile betrayal. These new allies agreed on the condition that the Cyclopes go free, and after the battle the Titans would be thrown into Tartarus with the Hundred-Handers as their guards. Zeus eagerly agreed, and the Cyclopes immediately began to forge weapons for the Olympians. A helmet of invisibility for Hades, a trident that controlled the winds for Poseidon, and lightning bolts for Zeus. Together they overthrew the Titans, so that Rhea would never have to live in fear again. The Titans were taken to Tartarus by the gleeful hundred-handers, all except for Atlas. He had led Kronos' army while the king of the Titans recovered from his children bursting out of him. As punishment, Zeus placed Atlas on a mountain and made him hold up the sky to keep it from colliding with the earth. Prometheus, the Titan, became the god of forethought, which was apt since he could see the future. Zeus and his brothers drew lots as to who would rule what domain. Zeus drew the sky, Poseidon drew the sea, and Hades drew the underworld. The earth was the domain of Zeus's grandmother, Gaia, and as she was her own entity, she could not be ruled by any one of the gods. Prometheus could see the future. He knew that Zeus was the absolute worst. He knew he would bring terrible troubles like his father and grandfather before him. As he expected, it wasn't long before the Olympians noticed the ugly little clay and flesh creatures below on earth. The gods, in all their beauty and power, saw no need to keep these strange little pets of Prometheus around. They preferred their domain belong to them alone, and they certainly didn't want these funny little things Prometheus Prometheus begged Zeus to have mercy on the people he loved so much. Since Prometheus had dropped the hint as to who lived in Tartarus, Zeus was willing to grant him this favor, but he did have a condition. These strange flesh golems of Prometheus's would be required to make sacrifices to the gods. When asked what kind of sacrifices, Zeus commanded Prometheus to bring two examples of sacrifice to him, and Zeus would choose which was most suitable. Prometheus agreed, but he also knew that Zeus intended to take the best portions for himself and leave his poor humans with little to maintain their own health. Little did he know that he was about to establish a long-standing reputation as a trickster god. In the dark of the night, he slew a bull and butchered it. He took all of the finest cuts of beef and placed them into the stomach of the bull, making it appear slimy and unappealing. Then he took the bones and all the other inedible parts and wrapped them in glistening fat. This looked like a sumptuous feast. He presented the two sacrificial options to Zeus, who chose the pleasingly presented bones. 
He didn't find Prometheus's trick amusing, and he roared that if Prometheus wanted to save his miserable little grubs so badly, they could have the good parts of the meat, and they could have them raw. With a snap of his terrible fingers, every fire on earth went out. Even from Mount Olympus, they could hear the cries of dismay as people were unable to relight their fires. After days, the people were unable to eat and beginning to suffer. The few who were desperate enough to eat the meat raw soon grew ill and weak. They had no means to safely preserve the meat without heat. The people cried out to Olympus, and Zeus grew more and more smug by the day. Finally, Prometheus could take the human suffering no more. Near the gate of Olympus, he took embers from a torch and hid them inside a fennel stalk. Swiftly, he darted down to earth and gave the gift of fire back to the humans. Prometheus knew what the cost of his actions would be, but he loved his humans completely, and as an immortal, he knew that he and they would last through the rule of Zeus. As the fires on earth popped up one after the other, and the humans stopped crying out in torment, the king of the gods quickly knew that he had been undermined. He summoned Prometheus to him. He growled out his sentence for his betrayal. Prometheus would be chained to a rock overhanging the sea. The unbreakable chains would hold him in place as Zeus's pet eagle would dig out his liver every day and eat it. Prometheus shivered against his chains. The nights over the sea grew so cold. The strong winds and the salty air stung the wounds where the chains constantly rubbed his wrists and ankles. The horizon slowly developed a rosy, peachy glow. Morning. Morning meant relief from the cold, but it also meant he would be coming. Sure enough, with a nearly inaudible flutter, Zeus's eagle landed beside him. Prometheus choked back the nausea that always came with the anticipation of pain. The eagle raised his talons and tore into his side under his ribs, where the flesh had just healed into a smooth surface. He wasn't unnecessarily brutal. He had no personal animosity for the Titan, but he was still the beast, and a certain amount of savagery was in his nature. He plunged his beak into the bleeding, gaping hole as Prometheus cried out and arched his back. The raptor found the liver and pull, pull, pulled, ignoring the Titan's agonized wails. Finally, he popped the organ free and flew off with it, leaving Prometheus weak and exhausted on the rock. By the next morning, his liver would grow back and the wound would close. Immortality had never been so cruel. His life continued this way for days, weeks, years beyond measure, until after centuries of waiting, finally she arrived. A beautiful white cow gro <coughs> excuse me, groaned and ran for her life. Her name was Io. Love, she was here. It was be the beginning of the end of his torture. Io was once a priestess of Hera, but as tended to happen to beautiful women of the age, she caught Zeus's eye. When Hera became jealous, Zeus tried to hide Io by turning her into a beautiful heifer. In response, Hera caused a gadfly to bite painful chunks out of poor Io. She and Prometheus talked between her attempts to flee from the gadfly. She had been so absorbed by her own suffering that she was horrified to find someone whose circumstances were worse, and also that had Zeus to blame. 
She felt so sorry for him that she soon was asking how to help the Titan, without whom humans wouldn't exist. He told her that she needed to return to Zeus and he would turn her back into a human. She wasn't sure how that would help him, but Prometheus knew that through her would come the line of Hercules, who would later arrive to break the unbreakable chains and set Prometheus free. Zeus was about to return Prometheus to his torture when the centaur, Chiron, exchanged his own immortality for Prometheus's freedom. Zeus agreed, but warned Chiron that his death would, be the re would result in the end of the days of the Greek heroes. Prometheus slowly earned his place back to Olympus intervene when Zeus's wandering eye landed on a nymph named Thetis. He warned Zeus that the son of Thetis would surpass his father. With Zeus's family history, this was not a fate that he was interested in perpetuating. With this knowledge, he forced Thetis to marry a mortal man, which was far beneath her station. This was a way to ensure that the child would be no rival to Zeus. He would be the hero Achilles. Prometheus smirked. Little did Zeus know that he already had a son who would end his rule on Olympus. Lemonade Mermaid here, and I'm excited to say that I got back in the pool. Um, I mean, I've been in the pool already this year, but uh, this was my first actual lap swim of the year, so I'm excited to say that I'm kind of moving back into earning my title as the mermaid. Um, it, it was rough. It's been a couple months, so I didn't swim quite as far as I was hoping I would be able to, and also the water was a little bit colder than it was last time I started swimming because last time I didn't start till August. Now it's April so it was a little chillier but once you get moving it really does help um, help you stay a little warmer. But yeah it was lovely. I uh, definitely am more of a manatee kind of mermaid than a Disney kind of mermaid but you know with more practice the better shape I'll get into. Today's story I wanted to go over because it does again lead right up to the birth of Achilles. You may have been noticed, or you may have noticed me kind of rotating around that point of the birth of Achilles, even as I told kind of the beginning parts of the Achilles story, just because Achilles really is a key feature for the Trojan War. And so by working up and around Achilles, we're really setting up our cast of characters for that Trojan War. It's kind of interesting, the story of Prometheus, because Victorians tended to see Prometheus as a warning of science reaching too far into what should be God's territory, which is why stories like Frankenstein um, tend to make reference to Prometheus, because they're stories that are talking about what are the limits of where science kind of uh, steps on the toes of ethics. In fact, the subtitle of Frankenstein is The Modern Prometheus. Um, I don't know, I just, this, that's not really the lesson I gather from the story of Prometheus. It, to me, it's almost more of a no good deed goes unpunished kind of message where, you know, doing the right thing is almost always the more difficult choice to make. It's always the more uncomfortable choice to make. And that, to me at least, is what I tend to glean from Prometheus. He did the right thing for humanity all along, and the cost to him was great and terrible torture, like centuries of torture. But doing the right thing always is the harder, more painful thing, whether it's just keeping your mouth shut about something, or whether it's standing up for something even though you're going to you know, face persecution for it. 
the right thing to do is always the harder thing to do. And that's kind of more the message I gleaned from Prometheus, who was so compassionate towards humanity, even when the gods and the titans didn't particularly care for humans, that he really did endure horrible suffering for the sake of humans. And I think uh, Chiron would agree, seeing as he gives up his immortality for the sake of Prometheus. Next week's story of Icarus and Daedalus, to me, seems like a better symbolism for where, you know, you're kind of letting your discoveries of science and what you can do overstep the boundaries of what you should do. And to me, I see Icarus as a much better metaphor for that than I do Prometheus. But obviously, I'm coming at the world from a very different perspective than the Victorians were. So, you know, who knows? <laughs> it's... It's a difference of perspective, I think, um, and a difference of context, which can completely change the meaning of stories over time, which is part of why this podcast exists, is because the changing in our context often makes us view these stories in a different way than they were originally meant to be seen through. Um, another thing that made this story appealing for me, because I was originally going to make it just about Prometheus and not really have that much about Zeus in it, but... It was too tempting to throw in that constant cycle in Zeus's life, that cycle of sons overthrowing their fathers, then mistreating their own kids so badly that then their sons overthrow their fathers. And Prometheus, as a titan, would have lived long enough to see this happen over and over and over. And he just kind of sits back as the sort of trickster of this group and just watches this same cycle repeat itself over and over with... Uranus's sons defeating him, then the Titans' sons defeating them, and so on and so forth. Eventually, Zeus himself, his rule is ended, I think, by Ares, the god of war, who demands not that uh, Zeus be killed as the Titans or as Uranus were, but more um, Ares sees it as time for the Greek gods to stop interfering in the matters of humans because when they do, things tend to go pretty badly. Now, the Greek and Roman gods of war, um, Ares and Athena, were kind of two different sides of the same coin, with Athena representing the more wisdom and justice side of war, where she was meant to be the good sides of war, the, the parts of war the, that set captives free and, you know, fighting for justice, whereas Ares was more about the violence and the gore of it all. So to have him have the foresight and the wisdom to see that, hey, maybe we should stop interfering with these humans was an interesting choice to me as far as Greek mythology goes. You'd think that they would have Athena be the one to make that call, but if, since I haven't dug that deeply into that side of the mythology yet, for all I know, that may be the case, that in some versions Athena makes the call, in other versions it's Ares, but um, I just think it's funny that in the end, Zeus goes to this great measure of having Thetis marry a mortal man so that her son, who would overcome his father, would be Achilles and thus not be a rival to Zeus. I think it's interesting that he went that far when he was already the father of Ares, who would, in fact, be the one to end Zeus's reign over the humans. And he didn't know that he had already kind of had the son that would cause the end of his rule. I don't know. It's fascinating to me. It's again going back to that concept of Greek tragedy whereby trying to avoid events that have been foretold, you really do make them come about as we saw in Oedipus.
it's it's fascinating they don't really get sick of that whole that sort of plot twist but it it really does it's just frustrating as an audience to see how many stories go this way i'm like dude guys stop going to oracles stop going to prophets stop telling the future because it's only making things worse but they keep doing it and it tends to be kind of a constant descent into tragedy for all the characters in these greek stories it'll be uh kind of a relief to get back to regular fairy tales once we get out of this we think of the regular fairy tales as being so gory and so dark but really these greek tales are just as bad and if anything they've got much more sadness to them along with it so yeah once we're finished with the season of the greek gods we dive back into other fairy tales and by that time we might be relieved to have them if you like this podcast and would like to hear more and uh, enjoy listening every week as we talk about, well, this season about Greek mythology, which plays a huge role in our society that we aren't always aware of. I think the more you hear these stories and these themes, the more you kind of notice them in our society. And so, you know, it's an, it's important to know your Greek and Roman history, especially here in the Western world. We're very influenced by it. And so, yeah, if you would like to hear more, and you want to keep up, please do like, subscribe, and share this with all of your friends. Seeing you enjoy my stories kind of keeps me going and is very encouraging to me, especially now that it's an all-free program, to uh, see other people, how many people are liking and subscribing and following this and, and wanting to hear more. It, it really does motivate me to keep going every week. It really is a lot of fun. And... Um, it's really fun for me too, personally, to kind of enjoy all of the different lessons that we pull out of these myths and legends and stories. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I do, because I do think there's a lot more that we can learn today in a modern society. We're so used to all of our stories having that Disney ending, that happy ending where everything turns out right, or what we call right. <laughs> but in our society today, I think we've become kind of soft because of this. We've become much less aware that every single choice we make has either a good or a bad consequence to it. And many kind of consequences that are in between good and bad. And I think a lot of that is because we've lost the truth of these stories where when you do bad things, terrible, ter and you make bad choices, terrible, terrible things happen to you. And it may not be today, it might be decades from now, but there is always a price to pay, good or bad, for any choice you make. And our stories today don't have that, whether it's Disney's Little Mermaid making it so Ariel signs a contract that then Daddy and Eric save her from the consequences of, or, you know, whether it's Disney's Hercules, which doesn't include the tragic actual story of Hercules and the reason that he has to do the labors is to make up for the horrible lives that he took. Our stories originally existed to help us see that there were consequences for our choices and what consequences may come of what sorts of choices. Obviously to a much more extreme degree than usually happened in actual life back then, you know, not every child who strayed from a path in the woods was eaten by a wolf, but it's something that could happen. And it was, I think, served the purpose of making people much more aware of there being direct consequences today or tomorrow for all of their choices. Whereas today, we tend to assume that none of our choices have consequences. We can just do whatever we want, whatever we feel like at the moment. We've confused our feelings with the truth to such an extent that we don't know what the truth is. 
And it's very frustrating to see so many stories go on and on and on without any consequences. I think that that's part of the rise in popular like Japanese comics, like anime and manga, is because their stories have consequences. When their heroes make bad choices, people actually die. And that's something in our Western fairy tales that we've kind of sheltered ourselves from. And as such, because we've sheltered ourselves from these things in our stories and our mythologies, we've somehow tricked ourselves into believing that in real life also there are no consequences for our bad choices. And humanity, we're such funny things. We're constantly wanting to fight to save the world and fight to make a difference and all of that kind of thing. But when we get rid of the consequences of all of our actions, then we start creating imaginary injustices and fights to have. And so it just proves that we feel like we want to fight for what's right, but at the same time, when we eliminate right and wrong, then we create new fake things to fight over, and that only divides us further. So I think part of the importance of this podcast and part of why I ask you every week to like and subscribe and share, even though it's not a podcast you have to pay for, it's not a big podcast, nobody's heard of it. Part of why I continue to ask you to share it and spread it around is because we need to hear these stories where there are horrible consequences for your actions, and I know they're grim, and I know they're sad. Some of them are literally grim because they come to us from the Grimm brothers, but but, you know, that's... That's just an aside. But, you know, I know some of these stories can be dark and hard to listen to, but that's part of why these stories were told was so that you could learn about the consequences of foolish choices from hearing the story instead of learning about the consequences because you're experiencing those consequences for yourself. And I think if we continue to not pass on this kind of wisdom through stories to children and even adults today then they're going to have to learn their consequences the hard way instead of through Little Red Riding Hood or through Hercules or through Prometheus. So again, please do pass these stories on to all of your friends and help share the wisdom literally of all of the ages of humanity from all over the world. I know they just seem like silly little stories and it just seems like a silly little story podcast. But part of what's tragic about when they go through and edit our stories and our history and changing things in recorded history is that then we lose that wisdom. And so I'm trying to kind of be a little oasis here of sharing that wisdom of thousands of years of humanity that is tucked into these neat little stories that you can gain your own pearls of wisdom from. Please do share them and uh, help us learn from stories instead of having to learn from our actions. Have a wonderful weekend, and I look forward to talking to you about Icarus and Daedalus next week. Speaking of consequences for actions, we'll learn all about that, and uh, try not to fly too close to the sun in the meantime. Have a good one.